Remain standing as we turn to Matthew chapter 12, continue our series through the book of Matthew, and now into a new chapter as he continues now in a new section, but yet continuing as he responds to those among him in unbelief. Here we're going to see Jesus responding to religious criticism and how appropriate and applicable we should be able to find ourselves somewhere in the midst of the train here as we now consider Chapter 12, I'll begin reading at verse 1 through verse 14. Now hear the word of God. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But he said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law on the Sabbath, the priests of the temple profane or break the Sabbath and are blameless or innocent? Yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Now when he had departed from there, he went into their synagogue, and behold, there was a man who had withered hand, and they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, that they might accuse him? And then he said to them, What man is there among you who has one sheep, and if it falls into the pit on the Sabbath, will he not lay hold and lift it out? How much more value, then, is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful. To do good on the Sabbath. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and it was restored as whole as the other. And then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. Our gracious Father, open our eyes today with where we are in our spiritual life as we consider the Holy Scripture and the law and our Christ. And help us, O Lord, with the help of the Spirit who attends the preaching of the Word to empower it to be living and lively to our own lives and to change us into the image of Christ and help us with the guidelines it here offers for us to know how to be more godly in Christ Jesus in all of our lives with all of the principles and with all of the applications that Your Word unfolds. Lord, there is so much here. Help us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. What we have before us is an account of a very serious problem. And it is a very serious problem, but it's a problem that can only be raised by very strict and serious-minded religious people. There are a number of lessons for us to consider in this passage that takes us right up on the knife edge. And Genesis, we're going to be on that knife edge today, and we're going to try not to fall off, uh, fall off to either side, but it's going to be a precarious balancing journey for us as we're right up there on the edge. 
You know, when there are serious-minded people about their Christian religion and they want to ensure that they keep the commands of God, they tend to be rigid in that aspect. They must always keep alongside that desire the very purpose and the meaning of those laws and what those laws intend in maintaining. And that is a love of God and a compassion for others. On the one side of the knife edge are those who are overly scrupulous and who can easily forget compassion. They keep the laws and the commands of Christ at the expense of others. And they fail to be compassionate. Thus abrogating the very meaning and the substance of the law itself. But on the other side of the knife edge are those who are not so scrupulous and not scrupulous enough. And they will tend toward a dismissal of God's law or the outward applications of even God's principles. Yes, I believe that in principle, but the application. <laughs> right? They tend to see all the exceptions and they live the exceptions as the rule for their life. Their liberties in Christ are exercised in such an excessive nature as to dismiss the very nature of the law itself. Now, out of these things, people on both sides of that knife edge will find fault with the others. And oftentimes, they will condemn the innocent, just like the Pharisees did Jesus here. Because they truly do not understand the nature of the law itself, or they fail to live it out in a manner that is pleasing to God. And here in this difficult passage are some very good lessons for us. As two incidences are shown, both of which happen on the Sabbath day. First of all, they went on the Sabbath and the disciples decided to pick grain and eat it. The second incident which was shown to us is Jesus now illustrating a lot of the principles and applications that he had previously given, and he heals a man in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. These are two incidences. As we know from Luke's gospel, they are on two separate Lord's days, but one right behind the other, and we don't have any other record of any revelation of what happened in between those two events. So we know that the focus here is on the Sabbath. But this was not merely the Sabbath as it relates to the Jews, as Matthew's gospel, we might think, would be, because Mark and Luke both also record these events, and those were written primarily to Gentiles. Both are addressing the lawfulness and the activity on the Sabbath. And the Sabbath today is still a big issue for Jews. In fact, as you would confront the Jews about the Messiah, that one of the big points that they would make is they would look to Jesus and they would look to what he did on the Sabbath and then they would discount the entirety of his messianic claim based upon his abrogation or his breaking in their minds of the Sabbath. It's not just a problem for Jews today, it's a problem for Gentiles. It's a problem for the church. It's a problem for many Christians today. But the Sabbath difficulty, and I don't want us just to, because that's the immediate thing that's being addressed, but the Sabbath difficulty also parallels other kinds of difficulties that very conscientious Christians have in their lives and that which we're going to have to wrestle with with one another. 
There are deeply conscientious Christians who attempt to strictly observe what they believe the Bible teaches. And as a result, they end up having a problem with someone else who may be blameless or innocent. Now, as we deal with the proper subject before us of the Sabbath itself, I want us to also keep in mind those other analogies or those parallels that can follow this, and the application for us can be very broad. But as we consider the Sabbath, we need to keep the Sabbath in perspective. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy is the fourth commandment. And the moral commands of God reflects the very nature of God. So morality cannot change from one epoch to another epoch or from one era to another era. God's nature itself does not change. Therefore, morality does not change. So there's something in the Sabbath command that is unchangeable as it pertains to morality. The nature of God. But we also know from the New Testament that there are some things about the Sabbath that has been fulfilled in Christ. As Paul would tell the Colossian church, so let no one judge you in food or drink or regarding of a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, which are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance is Christ. We also know from the Bible that there are aspects of the Sabbath pertaining to application that were positive law. In other words, a positive aspect of the law are those parts that can change. They weren't attendant to the morality of it, but there was a positive aspect that does change with circumstance. And there are some positive aspects of the Sabbath that change with its fulfillment. But what our Lord does not deal with were the details of what it meant to break Sabbath. In fact, the Old Testament itself does not detail a lot of details of what it meant to break Sabbath. And as a result of the lack of those Old Testament details, the Jews took it upon themselves to write in the Talmud, not an inspired work, 39 categories of labor that would define what it would be in terms of a violation of the Sabbath. 39 categories of labor. In this particular incident, Jesus is going on the Sabbath with His disciples, and His disciples pluck grain, and they then pop the grain in their mouth on the Sabbath day, and they begin eating it. And they violated several of those rabbinic categories in doing so. When they picked the grain, they were in violation of the command by actually harvesting on the Sabbath day, according to the rabbinical definition. In order to be able to eat the grain, they had to then thresh the grain with their hands. And by so doing, when they rubbed them in their hands to separate the grain from the chaff, they were then in violation of threshing according to the rabbinical definition. When they then 
blew the chaff away in order to eat the grain. They were winnowing according to the rabbinical definition. And the very fact that this whole ordeal was food preparation, which took place on the Sabbath, which they were supposed to have done on the sixth day, they were in violation with the food prep laws of the Sabbath, violating at least four of those categories of labor on the Sabbath. And the Lord answered their question. He answered them seriously. He didn't discount it. He, he did not do like some of us do. Oh, man. And roll our eyes at them and kind of dismiss them with contempt and, and marginalize all of their scrupulous nature of the Sabbath. He did not do any of that. He addressed their questions seriously. And the first way he addressed their question is he responded to those who were criticizing him as he took up the Scriptures. He says two times there in this passage, one in verse 3, and the very first words out of his mouth, have you not read? Verse 5, have you not read? Verse 7, do you not understand the Scripture from Hosea 6.6, 6, the passage that we read earlier? He questions their reading of the Scriptures in its complete comprehensive nature. He questions their understanding of it in light of the entirety of its context. And he answers from the Scriptures and see how comprehensive he was. He pulls a situation from David's life that was not prominent. He pulls a situation from the priest's daily life, and particularly on the Sabbath when they had to do double the amount of labor because it was double the amount of morning and evening sacrifices among the other things that happened on the Sabbath. And then he pulls kind of an obscure passage out of Hosea chapter 6 and he asks them if they had understanding. What he answers is from a comprehensive and broad view of the Scriptures. And it is imperative that we follow our Lord's example here. Not our viewpoint. Nope, didn't start with his viewpoint. We, we don't work in these kinds of responses to our critics based upon our denominational tradition. It's not according to our long-accepted practice. No. It's not even according to our strong preference. No. It is not what we always thought was right. No. It's not how we feel about something. No. Or finding some Christian author on the web that agrees with our position and simply use his argument for our defense. No. We start with the Scriptures. Have you read the Scriptures? Have you read the Scriptures? Do you understand this passage. Because that's where we've got to start. Would to God that the church would be all about that right there and we would have so much more unity and less division among ourselves. Have you considered all the facts? Do you understand what they mean? Do you have a comprehensive viewpoint of that? 
And if you do not have a comprehensive viewpoint of the fine points of Scripture and a good interpretation of its whole, be very, very slow to make dogmatic conclusions against your neighbor. No matter what side of that knife edge you may be leaning. Always make the Scriptures your starting point. That's our common ground for Christians to discuss matters. It's essential for Christians to meet there. You know what? It's essential for you to even meet unbelievers there. You start with the Scriptures. You don't start with your philosophy. You don't start talking with someone at the water fountain by a particular way that you believe. You start with the Scriptures. See, the Bible is for everyone. The Bible is for unbelievers. In fact, how are they going to come to the knowledge of salvation apart from the special revelation? You have to start there because this is not just like any other literature. The, the Bible does not come alone and neither is it ever by itself. But the Holy Spirit always accompanies the reading, always accompanies the sharing, always accompanies the preaching of the Word of God. And the Bible says itself that the Word of God will not return unto Him void. However God sees that. It might not bring forth the fruit that you are intending or you desire out of that. But it does not return into God void. It will accomplish that for which it is being sent. See, the Word of God is a living Word. It is something that God Himself then gives the words their force. So the Lord turns them to the Word first. And questioning their reading of it. And second, and questioning their understanding of it. And doing so, He questions if there aren't some fine facts and details that perhaps they left out. The more dogmatic of a person you are, or the more critical in nature you are, or the more liberties you decide to exercise, the more detailed and precise you need to be with the Scriptures to have all of your finer points of understanding worked out in that you have read the Scriptures and you understand them. The second thing he does is he draws attention to the facts. He starts with the Scriptures and he draws their attention to the facts. And two facts he draws their attention to are two different scenarios the first one is David and the showbread and the background that he is giving here was when David was running from Saul he was fleeing and they were famished and without food and he comes to the little town of Nob where the tabernacle was set up and Ahimelech was there who was the priest and David says have you any food here and Ahimelech said no we don't have anything except for the loaves of the showbread and they had just been changed out, which means that David probably either entered on the Sabbath or like the day right after the Sabbath. And they still had the old uh, loaves from the showbread uh, that had been displaced. And those were only lawful for the priests to eat. And Jesus here says, have you considered David? How he entered the house of God and he ate the showbread. And I want you to notice the next phrase, which was not lawful for him to eat. What he did was not 
lawful. It was a violation of God's law. And the Lord used this particular term himself to show and characterize what happened. Our Lord doesn't draw a conclusion right then, but he's using this as an illustration in answering the Pharisees. So for the time being, he's just throwing that data point out. Have you thought about that finer point? Second example, he then brings up the priest. And the priest, he says, profane or break the Sabbath every Sabbath. Verse 6, verse 5. How the priest in the temple, they profane the Sabbath. And yet they are blameless in doing so. What he's saying is they break the Sabbath every Sabbath. And they're innocent in doing so. Have you thought about that finer point? He says to the Pharisees. Here in both cases, the Lord is drawing attention to exceptions. In the case of the priest, the exception was entirely lawful. But in the case of David, it was not a lawful exception. And he's asking these people, how can you account for these things? How can you account for those exceptions? You're judging me here this day for what we are doing. And can you account for those exceptions in the law? In the exception of the priests, they're innocent. But in David's case, what he did wasn't according to the law, and it was in clear violation of the law. Can you account for that in your system? Can you account for that in your application? How do you account for those exceptions? That's what Jesus is pressing. And the third thing he does then, after he uses those two data points for the facts, he then makes four applications. And it is from those applications that he's going to reveal what the truth is. Starts with the Scriptures, points them to the facts, and now it's through an applicational standpoint that he's actually going to hit the nail on the head. He does four applications given to us, one in verse 6, one in verse 7, one in verse 8, one in verse 12. He answers them four times with four considerations, and all of those considerations are applicational. And what he does in these, especially the first three, is he puts things side by side and he compares things. He's going to put one thing next to another thing, and he's going to compare those two things, and every time he gives an answer, and that is the key to understanding. Let's look at those four comparisons. First of all, he compares himself right alongside all of Old Testament worship. Yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. He's focusing attention upon himself. What he does here is he puts himself up alongside all of Old Testament worship. And what he does here is he applies this aspect of greater. There is one greater here. Now previously, in that application of the priest, when it comes to the priest and the observance of the Sabbath, there was something greater for them than for 
than, than for laboring on the Sabbath. There was something greater for them than for them not to labor on the Sabbath. And what was that something that was greater for them than not to labor on the Sabbath? It was the sacrifices and those offerings daily in the morning and the evening. Everything depends on the relationship with God through those daily sacrifices. And in this case, offering those sacrifices takes a greater precedent over keeping the Sabbath laws against no labor. See, that's, that's his point. Something greater. Now, the Lord comes back and he applies this issue of breaking Sabbath. I want you to know that there is something greater in the temple right here in your presence today than the temple and all of the Old Testament worship. Something greater. And what Jesus was doing, he was placing himself and his kingdom right alongside the temple, and he was stating that there was something greater to be concerned about. He puts himself right up alongside, side by side, with Old Testament worship, showing that right there, something greater is in their midst and going on right as they are observing and were criticizing what he was doing. And the implied result of all this is he is innocent, just like the priests were. They were finding fault with him, but he was innocent. And there is a new aspect of the Sabbath that is even more glorious than the Old Testament. But their eyes couldn't see it. They weren't ready for it. We actually see this in the Mount of Transfiguration. The reason I chose Mark's Scripture reading from the New Testament today because you have there with Jesus two prophets who appeared with Jesus up on the mount before Peter, James, and John. Those two prophets were Moses and Elijah. And those were the two prophets whose ministry was confirmed most emphatically by the miraculous. For no other two prophets had seen more and done more miracles than Moses and Elijah in the Old Testament. And then Peter then looks at Jesus among these two prophets of Moses and Elijah, and he assumes that they were all on the same level. And he wants to build all three a tabernacle. And then the Father's correction comes, this is my beloved Son. Hear Him. See, that was a corrective. Jesus gets the precedent over all of the Old Testament Scriptures. It isn't that Jesus and what He taught contradicts the Old Testament at all, or any of what the prophets taught. There is no contradiction, but the point is this, you cannot rightly understand the Old Testament without seeing it through the revelation of the New. The New Testament takes the precedent as it rightly interprets the Old Testament in the life and the personhood of Jesus Christ. This is why the Jewish people can't accept that. They want to view the New Testament in light of the Old Testament, and they never get to the place where they acknowledge that Jesus is the Messiah. It's only when we listen to God's Son 
will we have a right understanding about what Moses and Elijah were testifying about him. The nature of God's progressive manner of his redemptive revelation through history is that the further revelation clarifies the older revelation to make it more clear and more understood. That's the nature of redemptive revelation as it unfolds through the history of redemption. And in order to make that happen, you've got to submit to Jesus Christ or you will go astray. Jesus is greater than all of the greatest aspects of worship in the Old Testament, as great as they were. And he was what made the the second temple, which was a little inferior, a lot inferior to the first Solomon's temple. He is what makes that temple all the more glorious. Because he entered there. Well, the second application that Jesus then brings to bear is one given in verse 7. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. We are not guilty of breaking the Sabbath here. That's what he says. Now, the context of that quote is in a Hosea passage that we read earlier. God is bemoaning the fact that his people's repentance and their goodness are like a morning cloud. A morning cloud that uh, quickly dissipates into the sky and it doesn't produce a thing. And that passage in Hosea 6 is addressed to his people who are coming to the temple to offer sacrifice and expecting God to answer. And God says to them, you know, all this religion is like that morning cloud. I have a real difficulty, however, with the way that you are treating people. And he goes on in that passage condemning some of them for murdering their brethren, for trampling others of their brethren under their feet. And God says, I want compassion. I want covenant loyalty. I want mercy instead of sacrifice. Here we are on the knife edge again. That passage is not teaching that God does not care for sacrifices. It's exactly where some people's minds will just go. That would be a gross misunderstanding and a very shallow one at that. You have two things side by side compared. And in this case, he's not merely discussing the sacrifices as inconsequential. They were, in fact, commanded by God. But what God was looking for was a changed behavior from the violations and sins for which the sacrificial system was an atonement for. The very point of the sacrificial system was... That the people sinned. That was the problem. And what God really wants is not a people that go on and on in their sinning and then just find the fix by bringing their sacrifice to the temple. No, what He wants is changed behavior. He wants a changed attitude. He wants a changed thinking. He wants your change and the way you view Him, and how that lives out in your life. You can't just go on living any way that you want to if you're God's. And just come here in the temple of the Lord and say, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, and then go out and muddy up your hands, just thinking you can come back here and have it all washed off again. That's not at all the Spirit. 
He wants compassion. He wants the right treatment of one another. And what this does, when he puts these two in proximity, side by side, is it tests people's sincerity. It addresses hypocrisy. Because you know that you can go through all the motions of religion and do that with a completely empty heart. With an unchanged heart and unchanged behavior, you miss the entire thing. When those two things are placed side by side, the right of the sacrifice and a changed behavior from the heart, the one that takes precedent over the other is the change of heart. The way we live. Now you have to understand that Jesus is not giving an either-or scenario. But the context of this whole juxtaposition is that these two things were in the context of dealing with hypocrisy. And when it comes to the hypocrisy of life, that itself is a violation. There is an application for us here, and I want us to draw on this before we move on. When there is a possibility of taking a less rigid position for the sake of showing compassion to people, then that is what we ought to do. That is fulfilling the law. When there is a possibility of taking a less rigid position for the sake of showing compassion to people, then that is what we ought to do. Perfect example of that is in Matthew chapter 1 with Joseph. He thought Mary had sinned. He had two options. Number one, stone her. Or number two, divorce her. And because he was a righteous man, the Scripture says, he did not want to expose her publicly and he chose the more compassionate option. Because it was possible. The third thing he does in verse 8 was another application here. And he points to himself once again, as the Son of Man who is Lord of the Sabbath. And he puts two things right next to each other, side by side, and he's going to address that. And we're right back to the issue of his person. Who is this Jesus? Here, once again, he takes an opportunity to assert his messianic claim. And it comes down to this. Which is greater, the law or the lawgiver. There are two things that are side by side. The law, the Sabbath. And the giver of the law, Jesus. And which is greater, the Sabbath? Or the one who put it into operation? Jesus is the master of all things and he is master and Lord of the Sabbath. And we have to understand that in the Bible, Jesus and his apostles changed the arrangements that had been made prior with God's people. They can do that. The New Testament will alter covenantal arrangements with the way that God had previously dealt with his people. We no longer circumcise, we baptize. We no longer have Passover, we have Lord's Supper. But failure to recognize those adjustments And the reasons for them cause people today to stoutly maintain Old Testament practices that are in fact fulfilled in the New Testament, in Christ Himself. 
Or we fall off on the knife edge the other way, they'll fail to understand properly the point the Old Testament is making in fulfilled in Christ and discount the Old Testament altogether, which we see many people doing today. God did not change the moral aspect of His law, and neither did He change the moral aspect of His Sabbath. The moral aspects and those qualities in the law that point back to His nature and our relationship with Him are all maintained and intact. But there are positive aspects of the law that are attendant to the moral laws that do change. And who can change those aspects and bring clarity with its overall meaning? None other than the lawgiver himself. For instance, let me, let me illustrate with another commandment, and I'll come back to this one. The fifth commandment says that, in fact, Paul would say it's the first commandment with promise in the way that he then would express it. But he says the, the first commandment found in Exodus chapter 20 says, honor your father and mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Specifically talking about the promised land in the very context on their eve, if you will, of entering into it. And what Paul uses as he quotes that very passage in Ephesians, there's something that's quite radically changed of that fifth commandment but not the morality of it. He says, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment of the promise. He is absolutely embracing that commandment as a moral thing that we must keep. That it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. And there's the positive aspect of that commandment that he then broadened and gave greater fulfillment of that glorious commandment in the face of Jesus Christ. It is no longer a little piece of dirt in the Middle East. It is the entirety of this earth that is now the Lord's and the fullness thereof and for the peoples to enjoy. The promised land has been expounded and, and, and made large to cover the entirety of the earth. See, there's something much more, much more broad and more grand in these laws when we find its center in the lawgiver. And so it is with the fourth commandment regarding the Sabbath. It would be like me coming home, and I've used this illustration before, and... I want to surprise my wife, and behind me I have a dozen roses, and I ring the doorbell so she has to come to the door, and I give her the dozen roses. Oh, and she takes the gift, slams the door in my face, and walks off. She's so enthralled with the roses, she forgot about the giver of the roses. And what is greater, the gift or the giver? What brings greater clarity? What is the broader aspect? What is the grander grace? What is the glory of the matter? And with the fourth commandment regarding the Sabbath, can Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, keep the moral aspects of the law in place and keep the Sabbath, but make adjustments to the positive aspects of the law to broaden it and to make it more grand as it centers upon Him, the lawgiver? Yes, He can. And He does. Indeed, so adjustments of the Sabbath have been made. Like the day has changed. The day is more festive and glorious. It's not in the old form that it used to be, but it's in a new form. 
If we were reading a poem, arguing over the meaning of the poem, and then the poet who wrote the poem were to show up, and as we were discussing that particular interpretation of the meaning, then it's a simple matter of asking him, what do you mean? There's no need to argue about the possibilities anymore. What is greater, the poem or the poet? And that's what's going on here. The poet is here. And so the Lord of the Sabbath clarifies what is and what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And not one time is Jesus making a case that the Sabbath no longer applies or is in not, no longer in existence. Not one time. He's assuming. The very fact that he is going down this path of argumentation assumes that he was operating on the fact that it was still applicable. The fourth thing he does was the following Sabbath day. On verse 12, and he brings this fact in, and before it had to do with grain, now he's going to illustrate everything that he had just spoken about, but he's going to illustrate it with a miracle. And I think that's very notable here. The first point, what gets the priority? Mercy or rigid, inflexible application of the law? Those are two things. Secondly, who is he? He is greater than the temple and he is Lord of the Sabbath. And here what he wants to do is he wants to express all of those facts right there in the object lesson and healing a man on the Sabbath day. And so the scenario is set up and the curtain unfolds and here he is healing a man on the Sabbath day and they were out to get him and he knew it and he was presenting this in order to express who he was. He is showing on the one hand that healing a man's hand on the Sabbath, that he was in fact the Lord of the Sabbath, but even more than the Lord of the Sabbath, he was the Lord. This kind of work of compassion was completely in keeping the Sabbath, just like the priest's greater work and just like David's exception. But seeing the Sabbath isn't about physical rest primarily, but about Jesus and the rest that we have in Him. He then moves forward the activity of God in their very midst on the very day that should have shown forth His his work. See, we should always endeavor to keep Sabbath. I mean, who wouldn't want to, right? It's a glorious day. We shouldn't be involved in our regular employment on that day. In fact, what God says is, I'm going to give you seven days of wages, only work in six days. How how good is that? You want to work that seventh day? You may have to earn every bit of that wage, but I'm going to bless you for in those seven days with only having to work six days. I'm going to give you seven days worth of labor or, or wages. Just keep my Sabbath. Trust me in this, he says, over and over. We shouldn't be involved in our regular employment on that day. But neither should we stay at home from church because we need some physical rest from a tiring week behind us. That completely misses the point. The priests were doing double duty on that day and and this whole festivity and the delighting in the Sabbath was all about Jesus in the temple When Jesus healed this man, the Pharisees saw him in violation of the Sabbath because he was like a doctor setting up his shingle out on the Lord's day. Like the doctor kind of setting up shop on the Sabbath in their minds. And it was inappropriate for a doctor to heal on the Sabbath. 
And you see how you see how distorted their view is, and he brings it into bear with sheep. What they forgot to make notice of is in their very midst while he was doing this, that a profound miracle was going on and that miracle should have drawn their attention to something of the Lordship of Jesus and that he was indeed the Messiah and that they should bow their knee right then. It's not what they were doing. You can't just ignore that little detail, that just that little fine point. You can't just skip over truth. Oh, well, we don't really know what that means. Well, we'll just go here. You can't really marginalize one particular passage of Scripture or skip over a little fine point like, well, Jesus just healed a man. Nobody else could do that in our presence. We've never seen this done before. But the fact is, he did that on the Sabbath. What's the greater precedent in their mind? They completely miss it. And so do we so often. There was something much more going on here, much more grand, much more glorious than even healing a man's hand like a doctor setting up shop on the Sabbath. He brought into position side by side what they would do with sheep. Well, if one of your sheep were to fall in the ditch on the Sabbath, wouldn't you get it out? And what's greater, a man or a sheep? Again, what is the greater issue? You know what? They couldn't handle it. Just like a lot of other people can't handle it. And they plotted against him how they might destroy him. That's often what we try to do with each other. We can't handle it. We don't like it. I've staked my entire life and claim upon believing this particular way. Don't tell me I've got to change my entire way of doing things or way of thinking, my theology. I can't handle it. You have to see it my way. And they'll plot against you and me and against Jesus himself that they might destroy based upon the way that they have in their mind. One of the most graphic exposures of human pride and hostility of the human heart is when it sees the evidence of the truthfulness of Jesus in His ministry and they're still prepared to condemn the innocent. And give more preference to helping their personal sheep than to help their neighbor or someone else. See, the point that Jesus is responding in the context of those people who did not believe. These are responses to people of unbelief. And there's a sense of unbelief in us all, even as Christians. We still have areas of our life and quarters in our heart that are still filled with unbelief and fears and worries and anxieties and lack of trust in who Jesus is and what He claims He will do. But we have to get our center back upon Him because He is the center of it all. He is the Lord of the law. He is the lawgiver, the Lord of the Sabbath. And one is greater now in our very presence than anything else in life. And only in Him do we find a proper and right understanding of life, of the Scriptures, of what it means to be in our marriages and how to shepherd our children and how to live in relationships with one another. It is only in Christ 
do we find a proper and right understanding of life? It's all about, all about our relationship with Jesus. All about our relationship with Jesus. So let's follow his example. Both in his activity, where he goes, how he starts, how he comes up with the answers, how he answers those who are his critics, but as well as the manner in which he lives in obeying and fulfilling the law from the heart in its right intention in loving God and loving his fellow man. Our gracious Father, we pray that you would take the many areas and aspects of this message of truth and make application to our lives to make us more loving and compassionate one to another. And may we start with the Scriptures. May we get back to the fundamentals and the basics of our faith that Jesus here is holding up the example for us. And may we be willing to be humble and talk through and listen to the Scriptures no matter who it comes from, if the Spirit of God is impressing the truth upon us, we pray that we do not have anything to defend, but we just want to know what you would have for us and how we can love you better by serving and being compassionate to your people. And Lord, we pray that you would take this message and quieten down all of the distractions in our home and that you would settle the arguments between siblings and all of the wayward ways of thinking, the pride that so quickly elevates itself between husband and wife and parent and child and brother and sister, and that you would squelch all of those things with the Spirit to bring forth the meekness of Christ and show His glory in our very midst as we are compassionate with one another, as we love one another as we want to do what is right before our God. And we pray all these things in the strong name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.